chapter 4. And very shortly, we'll be reading verses 1 through 27. In his lifetime, Vincent van Gogh painted some 2,100 paintings. 860 of those were oil-based paintings, and he painted most of those oil-based paintings in the last two years of his life. He was an incredibly prodigious painter, painting sometimes two to three of these paintings in a day, and they're considered masterpieces. I have yet to paint one good thing, and he was knocking out like five masterpieces in a day. On the other side of that, Harper Lee, who's known as writing one of the greatest American novels of all time, wrote one major novel in 88 years of her life, and she published almost nothing else. She published To Kill a Mockingbird when she was 34. She had in mind Go Set a Watchman to be published as a sequel or a prequel. It was actually, turns out that it was the rough draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, but she didn't actually publish that until she was 88 years old. Two very different ways to look at a life. Harper Lee produced one great work. Van Gogh produced almost nothing but good works. We can look at the synoptics and we can look at John, and the synoptics are kind of like Van Gogh to John's Harper Lee. The synoptics portray Jesus again and again and again in new and different ways. They give little blips of pictures of him here, there, doing this with these people, and then going over here and performing miracles here. And it's a rapid-fire shot of nothing but paintings coming out of Jesus Christ. John, on the other hand, doesn't do any of that. He, he wants to not produce a lot of pictures, but very deep and detailed pictures of Jesus. And so he doesn't refer to numerous episodes where Jesus is meeting people and provides short, interesting little snippets of those conversations, but instead provides longer, detailed abstractions on what Jesus' interactions with other people are like. Come today to probably one of the best-known interactions that Jesus has with anyone in the book of John, and that is the Samaritan woman at the well, as he talks to her about the living water. This is a passage that is incredibly rich. It is filled with typology and allegory. It is, it is filled with uh, interesting subplots and sort of things that lie just beneath the surface. It is filled with way too much to cover today. And so we're not just going to cover it today. I also then struggled with where should I not cover, uh, and I, I couldn't find a good place to break it up. So we are going to do something um, I would term interesting, you might term foolish, but we're going to do this anyways, and you can't stop me now because I'm up here. Uh, we're, we're going to cover all 27 verses today in sort of a, a high 10,000-foot view, and then we're going to dig into it more over uh, the following weeks to see more of the, the details that John has built into it. And what's interesting about this is, is although we talked about evangelism back in chapter 2 with John the Baptist, we really get to see how Jesus then interacts with somebody when he is taking the gospel to them, when he is bringing the gospel to them. What does Jesus do? How is the gospel meant to go forward to people? What does it look like when it goes forward? How does Jesus spread the good news to people who have not heard? We get a, a flavor of this in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, please read with me, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, liked to go into Sychar, which was near, to get food while this woman comes out on her lonesome to get water from the well. It says that it was necessary for Jesus to go this way. You can look at this as though it's luck. You can look at this as though it's, it's happenstance. But we should always read these things as though they're providential. God intended for this woman to be there with Jesus alone, where the disciples couldn't interject, where other people drinking water from the well could not say anything to her or about her that would distract Jesus from what he was saying. It is hard for us. It is very hard for us to not have distractions when it comes to preaching the gospel to others or even when we come to hear the gospel preached to us. It is hard to have our full attentions on anything. We are programmed, especially in modern day, to not have our focus fully pointed at anything. The whole point of life, it seems, is to collect things and gadgets around you so that you can multitask and not actually have your attention on any one thing as though that is somehow evil and wrong. When we used to go out and visit in Louisville, we would always take three people with us. Uh, It wasn't for protection. Um, One of those might have been packing heat. I don't know. We were packing scripture so that we had that going for us. But we would go out and we would witness to people uh, who had visited our church and we would take three people because each person kind of had a job. The first person would be the person who spoke, who who would proclaim the gospel. Uh, The second person would be praying for the meeting the whole time. And the third person would often run interference. So if there was a dog or if there was a cat or, or anybody else who was around who might be causing problems, that person would try to limit the distractions because Satan loves to distract people. Distractions are necessary to keep the word of God from coming into your ears. We wonder And we are prone to feel it. It's not just wandering in our hearts as we often sing, but we wander in our minds and we wander in our heads. I would guess that on any given day when I hear other people pray, I probably pray along with them about 50% of the time. And I I don't think that many of you probably do much better than that. It's very tough to keep your attention focused. Even today, as we're talking here, you are distracted doesn't take much. You hear me say that we are praying for a good Samaritan rescue mission, and then you hear the woman of Samaria and their Samaritans. You say, oh, I get it. Samaria, Samaritans. I get where that comes from. They've got a place in Saginaw. I used to go to Saginaw a long time, and we used to go there for Fashion Square Mall. Is that still there? Oh, man, I need to do some shopping. And before you know it, I'm on point 18, and you've got no idea how we got there, right? It's easy to be distracted. We live in a world where you are talking with people, and they get updates and texts on their phones. They're checking Facebook. They've got dings and buzzes and rings going on all around them all the time. And that's if you are alone with them. If they are in a crowd, it is even worse. When you come here, then, you have to do all that you can to limit the distractions around you. You have to do all you can to make sure that your focus and your attention is on the word of God. When you sing, when you pray, when you hear the preaching of the word, everything that we do, our mind should be sharp and focused. And you should seek when you evangelize people to limit the amount of distractions that you have and specifically, if you can, the amount of distractions that they might have. Matthew 13, we hear the parable of 
the soils or the parable of the sower and a man goes out and he is sowing seed and some falls along the walking path, the rocky path. Some falls along rocky soil. Some falls along with the weeds and other falls in good soil. And as Jesus is explaining how each one of these is different, the the path doesn't even go into the soil and so Satan snatches that away before people can even hear the word. And the rocky soil gives life immediately but there's there's no real soil there and so the sun bakes it away but the weeds the weeds give growth. But we read in John 13, 22 that that growth doesn't last for long. Jesus says that as for the word sown among the thorns, this one hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The more you are distracted by the world, the less you are good soil. Jesus here is able to remove the disciples. She comes out by himself, and so he is able to present the gospel to her without distraction. Secondly, we realize that this is oftentimes the word of God is spread best among the unlikely. Among the unlikely. This woman is an incredibly unlikely person for Jesus to witness to. Now, she is a Samaritan. The reason why they're called that is because the northern kingdom of Israel had as its capital Samaria. The reason why there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom is because there was sin amongst the kings, specifically amongst Solomon, and so God split the kingdom, Israel or Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south. And in 722, the kingdom of Assyria came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. But they did something fairly interesting. When they destroyed them, they didn't remove all of them out of the land. Instead, what they did was move some of their people into the land. And by moving them into the land, they allowed them to intermarry with the Israelites who were already there, which wasn't a huge deal for the Israelites because they were already worshiping some of the Assyrian gods. And so what happened was this weird mixture. Already Jews who have come back from, the prom- or come back from Babylon and thought of themselves as special people all the more so to the Samaritans who, frankly, were not only half-breeds now, but they were of the northern kingdom. They weren't of the line of David. They weren't of the promises of God anymore. They already had problems with the Gentiles, but these Gentiles were the worst kind of Gentiles because they were Gentiles who were sort of half in and half out, and they kind of viewed them almost as traitorous. This is why it is so shocking when you hear the story of the Good Samaritan that it is the Samaritan who helps the man on the side of the road and not the priest. What's even worse here, what's even more difficult here is the fact that it's a woman who is talking to him. Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans, and Jewish men certainly do not have dealings with Samaritan women. Nevertheless, Jesus does not let that stop him, and he talks to her. It is unlikely, unlikely that he would have done so, and yet he does because he cares and he loves people. Who is, then, the question becomes, likely to hear and respond to the word of God? Who is it that that might be the, the profile of somebody who would do that. I mean, can we give one? To ask the question is almost to answer it. There is no profile. If we had a profile, we would follow the profile. The truth is that anyone is likely to answer to the call of the gospel. It's not the people who we think are necessarily close. It's everyone and anyone. So yeah, we, we seem to go out and we, we want to proclaim the gospel to all people. And we think primarily of our relatives or we think primarily of, of friends or neighbors. But really, anyone is a target for the gospel. 
It is unlikely, you might think, that I'm going to convert somebody by saying even part of the gospel to them. But you don't know how God is going to work in their lives. As unlikely as it is, it is God who works in them. In a recent book that we read called Evangelism, uh, we read the story uh, by Max Stiles of a business trip that he went to in Chicago, and he had very kind words of advice there. Uh, he talked about how he met a Muslim man named Ibrahim, and uh, when he got in the, the car, Ibrahim started talking about how Allah has created all of the world and that he keeps a record of everything that happens, both good and bad, and, and those who are good Muslims might get into heaven. And, and Stiles was on a way to a business trip. He became a pastor later in his life, and, and so he was halfway, he had just landed, and he was going to the conference, and so he was halfway thinking about business, and he wasn't really thinking about what he was saying. And when, when he got where he was going, eventually he, he gave him his credit card to pay for the cab and signed off on it. And he said, well, yeah, you know, I, I think that the major difference, though, between Muslims and Christianity isn't that, that we don't think that God keeps a record. We do think that God keeps a record, but Jesus Christ has canceled the debt that stands against us. Ibrahim said, hmm, and he drove off. And then he stopped. Styles thought, oh, oh, it happened. Oh, it happened. And he reversed, and he was really excited, and the guy handed him back his credit card and then drove off. And he's like, immediately failure came over him, thinking that I, I didn't do a good enough job proclaiming the gospel rightly and fully and correctly to this Muslim man. And he says this, but as I thought about it, I realized that what I could have said or should have said was not the issue. What I did say was true. And I would trust God to use that. And not just for Ibrahim, but for me too. It is good to remember that salvation is a work of the Spirit. We try to be thoughtful, bold, and clear in the way we tell others about the gospel, but God brings results. We can rest in that knowledge. You don't know what it is that you say or how it is that you say it might impact somebody. And you might not be the one who actually sees that fruit. They might be unlikely in their conversion. We don't actually know what happens to Nicodemus, for instance, who this episode is clearly playing off of. But any time you can preach the gospel to anyone, no matter how far away they seem from the gospel, no matter how hard they have been to the gospel before, just because they are unlikely, doesn't mean that they are unwilling to hear through the work of the Spirit on them. Third, we need to preach the gospel, and the gospel needs to be proclaimed with revised expectations. <sighs> Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He says, you don't even understand who I am. I have something great for you here, and you're wasting time talking to me about how I shouldn't talk to you. And she says, oh, that sounds great. Give me the living water. Eventually, she, she's puzzled by how he can get this living water. Living water for us sounds much like a Johannine phrase for eternal life, and it, indeed it is, but it's also an actual thing, right? There's a spring of water underneath this well that continually feeds the well. So the water is always flowing, and therefore it is always fresh, and therefore it is always good. You don't have to worry about it going bad. And he says, I could get living water for you. And she says, oh, that would be great. I would love to have some fresh living water. She doesn't understand what he's saying. Continually throughout this passage, she is always a notch below where Jesus is. She doesn't quite understand what he's offering her. She continually thinks that what she needs and what she wants is simply a cool drink of water. And Jesus is telling her, you should need and you should want much, much 
more. I'm not just offering you a drink of water. I'm offering you something that would quench your thirst forever. I'm offering you nothing less than eternal life. If you would have known the full gift of God and you would have known who I was, you would have asked and you would have received it. Sometimes, sometimes we are blinded by our need for eternal life, by all of the little things in this world. Recently, Brie and I have watched more commercials than we normally do. And she, she remarked to me in passing, I, I wasn't aware of all the things that we needed. And uh, it's true. They just, this is how they present things to you, right? You don't need a vacuum that can pick up like five cats at once, but you can buy it. And now you know that you need it because they tell you you need it. And now you're like, hey, I probably need that. You don't know that you need a new Buick until you see 15 Buick commercials in the span of 10 minutes. And you're like, that Buick, man, that could really make my day. This is how they proclaim commercials. They, they tell you what your need is, and then they show you how they can fulfill it. This is a, basically a gospel presentation. It's just the anti-gospel. And you think every once in a while that what Satan's going to do is take you up on top of the pinnacle of the temple and show you all the nations and tempt you to forget the gospel through that, but he does it through a number of small things every day, which makes you think that what you want is a drink of water when what you really need is living water. You keep thinking that all I need is that new toy or that smartwatch or this gadget that's going to help fix my life or this toy that's going to help make me happy, and none of it's true. None of it's true. You need none of that. What you need is living water. You need revised expectations for what you need and what you can get. It's not just that you need something better than that. It's that Jesus is offering you something better than that. He's not offering you trinkets. He's not offering you things where you're going to go away and they're going to break and you're going to need them again. This is the problem with every car and with every toy. It's the problem with every house that you're ever going to buy. It's always going to need to be fixed. It's always going to need to be replaced. You're always going to have to go back to that well to get it again. It's like salt water. You drink it, and it's cool, and it's refreshing for a second, but it will drive you crazy in the end, and you will need more and more and more of it to be satisfied. And what Jesus says is, I can give you something that will satisfy you, that will give you everything you need, that will be more than what you could ever have hoped for and longed for. We need to revise our expectations of what we provide to people, We're not just providing them good news as though what we're offering is what the world is offering only a little bit better. We're offering something to them that they can't find anywhere else that is off the charts better than anything that the world can offer them. We're offering them peace with God and comfort in the spirit and forgiveness through Jesus Christ and his blood. As Russ Moore once said, and I love the quote, He's talking about prosperity preachers, but it works for us in any of a number of ways. It's not that people want too much from God, that we don't ask him for things of the world. We ask him for things of the world because we want too little from him. Jesus says, if you would have asked, I would have given you living water. Springs would have come from inside of you, and there would have been living water there. It's a picture of the Garden of Eden. It's a picture of Ezekiel and the water flowing out of the temple in Ezekiel 47. In each case, life comes from that giving water. He says, I could have made it so the Spirit's work in you would have produced life in you, and you would have flourished like a tree next to water. But instead, you are settling for all of this water that will only make you thirsty again. Make sure you continually go to people and change their expectations of what they need and what Christ can give them. Fourth, 
the work of the gospel and the gospel stretches out and goes across the world by dealing with sins. It's odd, in verse 15, Jesus has her. He's got her where he wants her. Sir, give me the water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come near here to draw water. Young lady, bow your head and pray with me and we'll seal the deal. Always be closing, Jesus. ABC, this is real simple. You've got her on the line. Draw her in, right? But instead, he does the wrong thing. He says, go get your husband. And we know that he knows and she will find out that she's got five husbands, and he knows that, and this is not the right thing to do. Jesus, don't, don't bring up personal things like that. That's really touchy, and that wouldn't go over well. But nevertheless, there it is, and he says it. He does so because the whole point of the living water is to have flowing in you life. The whole problem from the reason why she doesn't have life flowing in her, the reason why she doesn't have good things in her is because what resides in her is sin. The gospel always has to deal with sins. It always has to make mention of sins. If the gospel is going to go out, we have to proclaim that the reason why you need good news is because you are filled with sin and that God will deal with it either by eliminating it through the work of Jesus Christ and the provision of the Spirit or by eliminating it from his presence and kicking you out from his presence forever. Jesus is proclaimed as the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away our sins. This is not just a private transaction between Jesus and God, but it involves you. We cannot proclaim the gospel without proclaiming the need to deal with our sin, to have our sin put before us and say that we need to repent of this. The sin is what keeps rivers of water from flowing in us. The sin is nothing more than a desert. Deserts and water do not exist in the same place. The sin does nothing but leave you parched. If we think that we can have eternal life with God while walking in sin, we know neither the truth of sin nor the nature of God. Jesus was sent to deal with sin. He can't provide this woman with living water unless he deals with the sin that is in her life. Fifth. The gospel spreads by centering on worship. The conversation between Jesus and this woman turns towards worship. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, she says to him in verse 19. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus wants to correct her immediately. Woman, the hour is coming, but is now here, where it's neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Listen, he says, there, there is coming a time, and, and that time is even now, where Jerusalem is not where you have to travel. Now, he's very clear that he's not saying this because the Jews don't have a center on salvation. He says very clearly, when you worship on this mountain, you have no idea what it is you're worshiping. You have no idea because salvation is from the Jews. It is clear that Jerusalem isn't really the problem. What Jesus then turns around and says, you need to be people who worship in spirit and in truth. At the very least, when he talks, when he talks about worshiping in the spirit, it means that the physical presence doesn't really matter. 
Now, what I don't mean is that you can just go home and watch sermons on TV and that kind of physical presence doesn't matter, but it means at the very least that you don't need to be in Jerusalem at a specific location. And what's more and more pressing for us is that just showing up here doesn't matter at all. You showed up here, and I'm grateful for each and every person who is here. I really, truly am. But if you were here, and you were thinking about 18 other things, and you were worried about what's going to happen on Monday, and you're already thinking about the grumbling of your stomach and the fixing of that with lunch, and you're, you're concerned about what's going to happen tonight, and you're concerned about how you didn't get much sleep and all the work, you, if you're worried about 85 different things, and you're not actually here to worship God, or what's worse, if you're here to make sure that we see that you are here, simply to make an appearance, Jesus says, that's, that's worthless. Uh, you don't worship with physical presence. You can't show up to a place and think that you're offering worship to God. The idols can do that. Our God doesn't. He doesn't want people who just show up. He wants people who worship in spirit. But it also means that you worship him through the work of the spirit. The reason why he talks about living water flowing through people and then the work of the Spirit, which, by the way, reminds us an awful lot of John chapter 3, which we're going to be talking about next week. That work of the Spirit in you is something that needs to happen in order for you to be saved. That you have to worship God in spirit. The Spirit needs to work through you and be working in you for you to be a true worshiper of God. That's the kind of people who he's seeking. He's not seeking the kind of people who fake worship. He's not seeking the kind of people that in Isaiah's words or Malachi's words worship him with their lips only and not with their whole being. But he is seeking people who honestly and earnestly worship him because the Spirit has worked in them to provide life and love for him. What's more, they need to worship in truth. He says you've got to have right understanding. You worship what you do not know. And we talk about and we preach doctrine here. We do it because we take what Jesus says here seriously. Listen, doctrine is first and foremost not there to separate us from Muslims, although it does. And doctrine is not there first and foremost to separate us from Mormons, although it does. It's not there first and foremost to separate our congregation from Presbyterians, although it does. It is there first and foremost because Jesus says it matters. That's why. We preach the doctrine of the Trinity. We preach the doctrine of the Incarnation. We preach ecclesiology. We preach all of the major, major issues that come out of my mouth that are theologically complex. We do that because we should worship something we know. And you cannot know unless it is preached. And I cannot preach it unless it's in the Word of God. And so we do that. We do that because it matters. It matters that we understand the God that we worship. It matters that when we talk about Jesus being both God and man, we have some sort of framework to put that in. And we don't just allow our minds to populate that with any sort of loose notion that we would like. We need to worship in spirit and in truth. And lastly, the gospel spreads by focusing on Jesus. All of that could be true. We can, we can talk about sins. We can talk about worshiping in spirit and truth. We can talk about how there is an offer of something better from God, but if it doesn't circle and focus and center fully and foremost on Jesus Christ, then it is not the proclamation of good news. She finally comes around to it. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And he says, I am it. I am here It's actually a very strong statement. It's one of those I am statements that you get later. I am the bread of life. 
He just says, I am. It is a statement where Jesus is coming very, very close to calling himself God very, very early in John's gospel. Who is the Messiah? Jesus says, I am. The one who is speaking to you is the Messiah. If it's not for Jesus, we get none of it. There is no sending of the Spirit without the coming of Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness without the coming of Jesus Christ. She asks a question in the middle of our passage today, something that we should look at later. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jacob features quite heavily in this passage. The answer to that from her lips is clearly no. She asks it in such a way that it expects a negative answer. There's no way that you, some bloke from Israel, are greater than our father Jacob, who is, after all, Israel. The answer is clearly yes, though. It is only through Christ that we have the Spirit. It is only through Christ that we have the truth. It is only through Christ that we have forgiveness of sins. It is only through Christ that we can raise our expectations of what we should expect from God. It is only through Christ that we can be reached with the gospel. It is only through Christ that we can see through the distractions of the world. It is only because of what Christ has done for us that we have any hope of eternal life at all. It is only because of Jesus Christ that we can have forgiveness for our sins. It is only because of Jesus Christ that we can have ever a relationship with God, our Father. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can even pray and expect that God would hear us. We can't even call out to him without Jesus Christ interceding for us. We always and only can end by focusing on what Jesus has done All we have is Christ. And because we have Christ, we have all things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for his patience with us, for his willingness to take Gentiles into his church, for his willingness to deal with our sin, for his grace in giving us the Spirit, for his wisdom in allowing us to see the truth. We praise you for this and proclaim afresh that there is nothing in us that is worthy of the great gift of Jesus Christ and nothing in us that is worthy of forgiveness and nothing in us that is worthy of grace, but it is only because it is freely given through you and the work of Jesus Christ. In him alone is our hope. In him alone is our glory. So we ask, Father, that you would give us one more time, now and forevermore, the truth of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Let it simmer and sit in us. Let we, let we be people, let us be people who proclaim roundly, loudly and strongly the gospel of Jesus Christ for the good of your church and the glory of your Son. Amen.